Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Aronex podcast from Fathom World. This is your podcast looking at the changing shape of shipping. I'm Craig Eason from Fathom World. Now in this episode we hear how new recommendations are emerging to report the efficiency of wind assist technologies on ships. There's news about an update on dealing with plastic pollution from ships and we'll hear why men need to talk about women more as we work towards greater diversity. Over the last few years, ship owners have been approached to use lots of different energy-saving devices. Many of them are fairly new, certainly not frequently used before, but they're certainly getting more traction now that fuel prices and greenhouse gas emissions are under the microscope. One of these new technologies is certainly getting a lot of that attention, not least because it's one solution that even the public can see and ask questions about. It's the emergence of wind assist technologies. These are the wing sails, the Fletner rotors and kites and other devices that are being developed, trialled and in a growing number of cases put onto ships as a means to cut fuel and to save emissions. But the same issue has emerged that I saw with the claims about new super efficient sleek hull coatings and about hull appendages such as propeller fittings about a decade ago. Namely that the claims of fuel and emission savings are sometimes vague but certainly not built around common benchmarks. For wind assist, this may change thanks to proposals coming out of a recent EU-funded WASP project. Now, Last week I moderated a closing event for this uh, project and in it Sophia Werner from Rise Maritime, formerly known as SSPA, talked about two of the work themes. One, to create a standardised way for wind assist technology makers to report savings, and the other to create a template for how sea trials could be performed to appraise whether the savings that a maker claims and predicts can actually be realised. Here's Sophia Werner from Rise Maritime talking about those work packages at the webinar. We experienced uh, quite early in the project uh, that performance of when assisted ships are expressed in many different ways across the industry and that creates some um, confusion and we see that there is no sort of standard way to express a performance. If we imagine some uh, fictive wind propulsion technologies here and we wish to express this in savings. Sometimes we hear savings being expressed as up to uh, 30% as an example. That sounds uh, fantastic, but what is meant is really the power saving that can be seen on a, the most favorable wind condition, on a very windy uh, condition. What we have to understand is that when we look at the power saving averaged over a full year with all the different wi- uh, wind conditions, uh, some days with no wind or uh, uh, headwind, and we average out uh, all this wind condition over a full year, the power saving is much, much less than this uh, ideal power saving figures. For, for different routes, we see the power saving goes down to around 5 to 10%. So this is uh, something to keep in mind when we hear uh, power savings being expressed uh, without further explanations, what is behind these figures. 
So there are some pitfalls when we use uh, the percentage power saving. Uh, it gives an impression that uh, it's a, a number that we can compare between different cases and different ships. But actually, if we look at uh, the very simple mathematics to derive a percentage power saving, we see that we need uh, to uh, divide by some baseline power. And uh, it's a bit different what, what people choose to put in this uh, number here. Do we assume calm water, clean hull, or do we include the sea margin? Do we compare sort of the total total fuel or including the pilotage and, and harbor maneuvering and so on, or just the fuel for propulsion? So these are often not um, specified, and this can affect a lot this power saving number when it's expressed as a percentage on top of, of the uh, fact that it's for different ship speed, different roads, different engines, and so on, that also affects this number. So uh, our, our recommendation is to express um, performance in something we call power saving potential. And why we call it the, the saving potential is that this is actually a bit ideal number. So it's the highest possible uh, power saving we can get out from, from this ship with this installation not considering uh, maintenance time and downtime and so on. So it's a, it's a little bit uh, ideal number. Uh, we choose to to set up a, a, a table of um, um, KPIs, well, or um, it's um, uh, a range of KPIs uh, depending on the power modeling that is used to derive it. So for example, very early, at very early stage in the project, uh, maybe we just need to do a general comparing of different technologies, scanning the market. Then we use a, a very simplified KPI we call rated VPU power, just uh, looking at the standalone unit. But then the next phase is an early idea uh, for installation. And here we use the power saving potential for level one. And that means we use a very simple power modeling for level one. And then uh, as the product moves on, we need a bit more accurate numbers so we for the early business case then we use power modeling a little bit higher fidelity model and and the power saving potential the kpi is called uh, power saving potential two and so on we increase the accuracy of the power modeling and the most advanced is uh, level four which applies uh, probably to primary wind power ships there are other issues, of course, in how to make sure that the recording of the performance is done in a consistent way. And that's also proving to be a challenge. For this, sea trials are needed, but then the question is of how they should be performed. Shipping is accustomed to sea trials. It's something that all new buildings go through, but there are calculations to effectively remove the impact of wind and waves on a ship performance, because what the sea trials are trying to do, amongst other things, is check the performance of the ship's engine or engines. Now, in a wind assist technology performance trial, the trial needs that wind and needs it at various angles. The answer, according to the proposals from the package, is to have a short sea trial, which in the case of a new building, for example, would be after the normal sea trial, and which can be used to verify that the results that can be measured do in fact mirror the estimated results that have been predicted in the design of the system, often using CFD analysis. Here's Sophia Werner again. Uh, our recommendation is that the WASP sea trial 
is carried out at a, a different occasion. So not at the same day as uh, the normal, so to say, uh, motorship uh, conventional yard trial, but um, perhaps during the first, uh, sometime during the first uh, two or three months of operation, when at a day place where the wind is sufficient, we don't need to, to wait to, to exactly uh, reference wind condition, exactly 10 meters per second or anything like that. It can be just a normal, normal wind condition between before, let's say, four or seven. And so it can be done during service. And that applies both to retrofit vessels or, or new built vessels. So during a, during a service uh, voyage, take uh, six, eight hours uh, off hire, do the trial and then just continue to the next part. But would, would you also need to have various wind conditions to be able to get to get a solid picture? What I mean is if you do the sea trials on one day for, for eight to 12 hours, mm. you might only get, you know, a, a light breeze, a force four or four six. But mm. to get a real picture and to get that real sort of compass rose picture that you were showing mm. you need various different conditions yeah so yes yeah, so that's uh that's uh, sort of the, yeah, the downside of, of this methodology of course that we only capture is as i said a spot check of the polars but that check is the most accurate we can do then if the predictions are completely off the question goes back to the provider to uh, update the models and the predictions and explain why why the polars didn't match uh, in the spot check then, of course, th this is the minimum check that should be done. On top of that, of course, uh, the ship owner and provider should do long-term follow-up, verifying um, operability, maintenance uh, schedules, uh, um, fatigue, all, all these uh, other aspects in, in hard weather and uh, light weather and different uh, conditions and so on. So that, that should be done as well, of course. But this is uh, the minimum uh, what we can recommend that we think all the mm. projects should should go through. Sophia Werner from Rise Maritime talking to me at the recent WASP webinar on some of the proposals from the project on how to prove that wind technologies work as they're proposed to do. The results of this are being worked out with the ITTC, the International Tag Testing Conference, an organisation which works on testing standards in shipping. And if you go to the WASP website, you can find more reports there. I'll put a link in the show notes. Now next week on the 18th of May it's Women in Maritime Day or rather International Women in Maritime Day. It's a new day for shipping and it's only the second year it's been run. Diversity and what it means for the growth of the shipping and maritime industries has been an important topic in recent years just as it has around the world in society and other industries. The UN sustainability goals bring it to the fore of course. But what does this mean for shipping? And in particular, why do we find this discussion continually being talked about by women and not so often by men? I was at the IMO last week and I met up with Mariana Nocetti to ask her about the day and why she thinks it's important and what the main point of this year's theme is. She talked to me about pillars for training, visibility and recognition. The idea of the day is to support the recruitment and retention of women in the maritime industry, 
really uh, bring attention to their contribution, give the general public better idea of the kind of roles that women could do in the industry. You know, we're gonna reach a point in the future where there's not gonna be enough workers for the industry. So if we're ruling out 50% of, of the people in the world, we're missing out really. Um, so that's kind of the, the idea of the day. Now bringing in half the population, so to speak, as a catchment for recruiters into the maritime and shipping space would only work if that half actually sees the industry. However, shipping is, even as Nocetti admits, a fairly invisible industry, and it's already hard to find young adults to get an interest in it, whether they be young men or young women. The maritime industry tends to be an invisible industry somewhat. Uh, so our idea, we, we've uh, produced a video, for example, for the 18th of May called Women in Maritime Can to feature all the different jobs that are available to women in maritime to really get this idea out there that we have availability of jobs for men and women in the industry and they, we need them. We need their contribution. We need the diversity. Diversity gives us a better outreach of ideas, innovation, you know, so it's definitely something that we're focusing on to get the idea out there that women are more than welcome in the industry and definitely there's a role for them. We've established eight regional women in maritime associations. So these are women that work in the maritime administrations and ports uh, and IMO has provided help to them for them that to meet uh, once every year or every two years to discuss matters that pertain to them in the region. Uh, we also provide them access to trainings um, that are focused just for them uh, in port management, leadership skills. So we're really giving more of a tailored approach to, to every region through these associations. And actually the theme for this year's International Day for Women in Maritime is uh, mobilizing networks for gender equality and it has all to do with these networks, these associations. It's really to feature the work that they've done and how they can uh, cooperate in the future for a more, you know, from a regional to a global approach of these associations. But the challenge of building diversity has to include men and I don't mean that in a passive way. Better diversity has to come without men retaining traditional often bigoted, even sexist ideas about what women can do. So I wanted to ask Mariana Nocetti how she sees the role of men in the industry and in this discussion about diversity. This is not a problem that we can solve with just the women's input. Um, I think a lot of the times what happens is they are not aware of the difficulties that women encounter um, because if it doesn't happen to you personally, you don't see it, uh, you're not private to it. So that's why it's very important to have, you know, commitment from the leadership of, you know, organizations, private companies to really make a case for gender equality and a diverse working environment that is inclusive to not just women, but all people that with different diver diversities, you know, we want to be inclusive in, in all matters of identity as well by proving by the leadership proving that they're in, uh, really committed to this, you really can start to transform the culture and really fight that unconscious bias. Um, you know, what happens a lot of times, for example, you will have in a interview panel, all men, and they don't realize how, how much of an effect that can take for a candidate. You know, they feel immediately othered when they go into the room and they may not perform as well as someone that feels immediately comfortable in that room. So things like that really would make a big difference. Mariana Nocetti, Principal Programme Assistant 
of the Women in Maritime programme at the IMO on why men should be ready to do more in the drive for diversity. Shipping, people come to find out what's new and, of course, meet up with colleagues and industry friends. It's also a perfect time to get updated. This year's Nor Shipping theme is partnerships. I'm Johan Matslin from Nor Shipping TV and we'll naturally bring you plenty of insights on our digital television channel. Or, if you're actually at the exhibition hall for Nor Shipping, you can freely visit the Blue Talk stage and listen to one of the 12 talks on dedicated themes. Maybe you want to hear the latest about shipping competing for future fuels, about hydrogen and electrification, or perhaps you're keen to discuss digital connectivity and automation. Or it could be wind propulsion, onboard carbon capture or offshore wind. Or maybe life cycle thinking, equitable financing of change or the reality about green corridors. On the one stage over three days, there will be 60 experts on 12 themes, arguing with a seasoned journalist keen to uncover where the shipping and ocean industries are moving. Find the Blue Talk stage at the Lillestrøm Exhibition Hall, just outside Oslo from the 6th to the 8th of June. Welcome to Nor Shipping 2023. Now next month I'm going to be in Oslo for North Shipping where I'm moderating a series of talks on numerous topics including digitalization, sustainability. They're the Blue Talks, each one an hour long, each has a series of experts and it'll be my job to ask them some tough questions about the changes that we see shipping and maritime face. One of these will be about the evolution of green corridors and energy hubs. Now this phrase was a product, I think, of lobby groups and policy people. And to some critics, it's a phrase that seems to be building up ideas and to try and get governments to fund this change. But shipping needs first movers. And while we see industry facing a future of new fuels, there have to be the opportunities. Green corridors may be based on existing trade routes, but they are going to make a difference. One of the participants at this particular Blue Talk will be Sveinung Oftedal at the Norwegian Ministry of Climate and Environment, but who's well known also for his chair role of the intersessional working group at the IMO, the one trying to thrash out a future set of targets for shipping and a new strategy to get there. I asked him whether the Green Corridor idea, which is now about three years old, when member states signed up to the Clydebank Declaration at COP27 in Glasgow, whether it started to make any difference at all, or whether it's still a set of projects where large companies get to talk and to look good. As I see it, the Clyde Bank Declaration was the starting point, meaning bringing the big focus on the highest level on that green corridors is an important uh, um, catalyst for the global transition to low and zero emission shipping. Now, um, uh, since then, uh, we have have announcement of uh, a significant amount of initiatives and and they are growing. And also what we are seeing, I think those initiatives are also tendering more towards uh, real investments. They're not there yet, but the declaration, the climate declaration is clearly the starting point and the follow up is, is escalating. The Blue Talks will run 
from Tuesday to Thursday of Nor Shipping Week, and you can find the full listing and timings on nor-shipping.com. Now let me take you back to the fire on board the Express Pearl in 2019. This was a new build container ship which caught fire and sank only months after delivery. Now while the accident raised a lot of questions, it also released a lot of pollution, some of which was millions, possibly billions, of small plastic pellets, some call them nurdles, which were in some of the containers. They these nurdles were swept ashore into Sri Lanka's beaches, causing huge problems and a year-long clean-up. They also raised again the issue of marine plastic litter. It is actually hard to say how much of the vast amounts of litter in the oceans come from shipborne and marine sources, but the best estimate is about 20% of it. Some of it clearly does come from marine sources, such as fishing gear, but some litter, it's not so clear despite there being a total ban on plastic littering on ships, and you can find that in Annex 5 of Marpol, but it doesn't seem to stop some. The IMO now has draft proposals restricting the transportation or the risk of nurdle spills into the oceans. It has proposals on tracking and resolving the threat of discarded and lost fishing nets, and the dealing with illegal discharge of plastic into the sea. I talked to Lucas Contogianis, who's Head of Marine Pollution at the Marine Environment Division at the IMO. Now he admitted to me that the 20% figure is still a very good estimate, but a very old one, about 20 years old, but it's the best they have. Some litter is, um, is exclusive to sea-based activities, so for example fishing gear or buoys. Um, but there are other types of litter, for example, single-use plastic bottles, food packaging, that is more difficult or almost impossible to differentiate between land-based sources and sea-based sources. So depending on, uh, on what uh, the focus is, one may be able to tell very easily if it's something that originates from a fishing vessel or a commercial uh, cargo ship or a cruise ship or it may take uh, more investigation and modeling to see whether it's coming from ships. For example, there was a study conducted by a South African researcher where they looked at the production date of plastic bottles that were found on the East Coast or the West Coast of South Africa, I'm not quite sure. And they determined based on modeling that it was almost impossible to have drifted from the site of production, which was somewhere in Asia, given the production date, that it was fairly uh, new. So the conclusion was that it must have originated from passing ships, potentially. It's difficult to prove, but it's a reasonable assumption to make. But given the doubt about the source of plastic and how ships can often avoid fines, how can marine plastic be dealt with? But there's not only the problem of identifying the source, the need arises to ensure waste handling ashore in the ports is properly taken care of, that it's there. And awareness of the rules and availability to manage these things are also important. One doesn't know at the moment whether the pollution is originating from a few bad actors, badly managed uh, ships and operators or fishing vessels, 
or if it's a general problem where ships tend to lose a certain amount of, of plastics. And it could be analogous to, let's say, fly tipping. You know, most of us don't fly tip, but there, if there's a lot of fly tipping by a certain number of people, then it creates a big problem. So is it a problem of fly tipping at sea, or is it a more general problem uh, with the shipping and fishing industry? So that leads to the need for awareness and regulation. The regulations and strategy are still developing at the IMO and one project that's ongoing is Glowlitter, one of the partnership projects currently being run. Yes, so the Glowlitter project is a capacity building project that, um, that has been started at IMO since 2019. And uh, part of the activities of Glowlitter is to uh, create knowledge products uh, that will help the partnering mem uh, the partnering states, the partner states, to improve their cap capacity to handle ship source waste, um, and also to raise awareness within um, local ports and uh, local port workers or ship operators. So some of the knowledge products that they've produced are a model port waste management plan. Um, uh, they've developed. They've helped the partner states to develop national action plans to address marine plastic litter from ships, and those, in my view, are first steps in or initial steps in um, implementing more practical solutions. Lucas Contogianis, the IMO's head of marine pollution, talking to me in London after the recent PPR subcommittee meeting, where nurdles, fishing gear, and plastic pollution was again on the agenda well that's it for this edition of the podcast please do like it share it and spread the word and if you have found this through the podcast platforms we publish this through make sure you go to fathom.world where you can sign up to get the fortnightly newsletter from us which includes these stories in more detail as well as a lot more so sign up for that and again use social media to help me spread the word and get more people liking what i and my small team are doing and in the coming weeks, we'll be reporting from CMAC in South Korea. That's the industry's largest gathering on engine experts. And of course, in North Shipping, where you can easily find me on the Blue Talk stage at the North Shipping Exhibition Hall. Until the next time, goodbye. <laughs>